Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Bridget Calhoun. This week, we welcome Lieutenant General Retired Tom Spohr to the podcast. Lieutenant General Spohr serves as director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. He is responsible for supervising research on national defense, including the Heritage Foundation's annual index of U.S. military strength report. Prior to joining Heritage, Lieutenant General Spohr served over 36 years in the U.S. Army. In 2011, he served as the Deputy Commanding General of U.S. Forces Iraq in Operation New Dawn, where he successfully oversaw the safe withdrawal of all American forces and equipment from Iraq ahead of schedule, one of the most complex and logistically intensive operations ever attempted by the U.S. military. His career boasts numerous key assignments in which the Secretary of the Army leveraged his expertise in weapons of mass destruction equipment modernization, and financial planning to reform the Army. Earlier in his career, Lieutenant General Spohr served as Commandant of the U.S. Army Chemical School and commanded a military intelligence company during Operation Urgent Fury, the invasion of Granada. He earned a bachelor's degree in biology from the College of William & Mary, a Master of Arts in Public Administration from Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, and a Master of Arts in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College. Sir, welcome to the show this morning. Thanks, Bridget. Happy to be here. Well, our first question that we always ask our guests is, what are you currently reading? Yeah, great question. And uh, I don't know if I'm like most of your guests, but I usually have two to three books going, one like by my bed, one next to the sofa, one next to my office. uh, And I kind of rotate. I don't know what that means. Maybe I have a hyperactive mind or something like that. But I'm reading right now Ghost Fleet, which is a book that came out a while ago, uh, but I'm now just getting to it. Uh, by P.W. Singer and August Cole, talks about what naval combat might be like in the future. That's really interesting to me. It's fiction, which is kind of fun too. So it doesn't, it's not bound by the you know laws of physics and that type of thing. And then on my nonfiction side, I'm reading a book called Net Assessment by Tom Mencken, who works as the president over at Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Also fascinating, completely different, talks about the origins of net assessment and how that function kind of matured in the Pentagon under the leadership of Andrew Marshall. And again, you know, people spend, like I did a lot of time in the Pentagon, many years in the military, you think, oh, this person is, you know, super well-versed in military matters. And, you know, nothing could be further than the truth. I didn't know anything about autonomous fleets like they talk about in Ghost Fleet. And I didn't know anything about net assessment, even though their office was like three doors down from me in the Pentagon. You know, when you're in the Pentagon, you're head down. You're just trying to get to the end of the day as best you can. And so this is an opportunity to kind of learn more. Uh, and I'm enjoying a lot. Definitely, sir. And that's one of the reasons why you're a guest we sought to bring on here is because you really do exemplify that lifelong learning commitment. You know, despite your your career that we just told the audience about, you're still interested in in learning new things and trying to get up to speed on current affairs and future conflicts. And I agree, sometimes the fiction route is a fun way to entertain the possibilities of you know, what lies ahead for both ourselves and our adversaries. So with your love of reading, sir, is that something you've always had? Have you always been an avid reader? And how would you say that reading has impacted your development as both a junior and then later a senior officer? Yeah, this love of reading, I don't know where it's Exactly. It started, but I remember uh, in elementary school, I was in a little 
grew up in a little town off Lake Michigan in Illinois, and we had a little tiny rinky-dink library. And I was in there almost every day on the way home from school, picking up something. And in those days, it was Civil War, Revolutionary War, or science fiction, one of the three. And usually I'd grab one of each of those. And by the time I was in middle school, I had essentially read every book that the little library had. And, uh, you know, these were the, back in the days when you had library cards and you could, you know, you could see actually what you checked out. And uh, me and the librarian in there, we had a great relationship and I would ask her advice on books and stuff like that. But yeah, very powerful influence. Didn't have a sense I was going to join the military. It was just fascinating to me. And then as I got into the military, I really fell back on all this reading and I didn't even know it was going to be uh, that useful. I will confess to you and, and your audience, I was a a uh, mediocre at best ROTC student in school. I had uh, ROTC in the military was probably 11, 11th on my list of 10 priorities. And so I put almost no emphasis on those things. And then when I found myself in the military, I fell back on my reading and then I started reading purposefully to get myself up to speed on, on what it was like to be a military officer. And so back in the day when I came in, we had this thing that was published every year, it seems like it was called the Officer's Guide. It, since time immemorial, they've been publishing this thing since the 40s. You talked about, you know, the little hospitality cards you laid on the silver platter when you came to somebody's home and stuff like that. I memorized that thing uh, just because I knows, knew so little about the military. Uh, I was a chemical corps officer, as you kind of alluded to. I read the history of the chemical corps in World War I and World War II, which were kind of fundamental to the corps. And I read about military intelligence because my first unit was military intelligence. And I wanted to understand more about military intelligence so that I could succeed in this job. Because again, I was coming to this with no knowledge whatsoever. And I remember in particular, uh, my readings about the history of the chemical corps really helped me understand the role of the chemical corps and to realize that the challenges I was facing as a chemical corps officer in a unit where People had, you know, no time for what I wanted to teach them. They, had, they didn't want to train with their masks. They didn't want to do any of that. These were not new challenges. These had been faced by Chemical Corps officers ever since there had been a Chemical Corps. Back in 1918, Chemical Corps officers were literally pulling their hair out and crying because people would throw their masks away and they had just no use for it. And even then, they, they had a, a real chemical threat then. And so, Reading about these people, reading about their trials and travails, and that I was not the first and I would not be the last chemical corps officer to deal with all these things really was a great comfort to me because, you know, it's probably like your branch, Bridget, MI. I didn't have a lot of senior, I didn't have any senior chemical corps officers with me. Nobody to tell me this was the deal. I was on my own in a unit uh, and I had to kind of learn all this stuff for myself. And so these readings, really helped me out and helped me succeed as a junior officer. Yes, sir. And I think that's one of the biggest comforts, as you said, that can come with an understanding through military history or, or really just any condition that we as humans find ourselves in that we're hardly ever in a new or unique situation. And I think there's, there's strength and comfort and wisdom that we can draw from learning that other people have gone through these. And not every situation, of course, will be identical, but there are certainly parallels that we can draw and, and inform our decisions to go forward. So that's great, great lessons to take away for especially our younger members of our audience that you may seem stuck on something, but there's usually a precedent for it. And 
kind of going, I guess, into some specifics of that, sir, for your career. So you had a bit of a baptism by fire uh, with Operation Urgent Fury in Granada. And just to kind of refresh our audience, so that was in the fall of 1983. It came on the heels of the Beirut barracks bombing that had occurred, which was a huge travesty and, and really surprising devastation to our armed forces. And and then right afterwards, we had the security incidents in Granada that President Reagan felt necessitated a U.S. response. Can you talk a little bit about that, going into it as a first lieutenant and then eventually winding up taking command in the midst of combat? Yeah. And so I was a member of the 203rd Military Intelligence Battalion, whose focus is technical intelligence, evaluating foreign captured military equipment. And there was only one of these kinds of units. And it was not a high readiness kind of unit. It's not like the, you know, the deployable brigade combat team at, at the 82nd. We were a low readiness unit kind of thing. But uh, we got a call and we needed to be at the uh, Pentagon uh, helicopter landing pad uh, the next morning. So that caused us to scramble a bit. And so it was me and I think four or five of my guys on this initial deployment were requested to come because they were discovering tons of foreign military equipment on the island of Grenada. And this was a big strategic effort on the part of the United States. You know, the president had made this effort, this message that this was not just Grenadians. This was, they were being helped by Cuba, who in turn was being helped by the Soviet Union. And so all this foreign military equipment on this island really needed to be kind of identified. And the American people told about it in order to reinforce the message that, hey, this was just not wanton United States hostility. There was actually people uh, establishing a base on this island. And so they gave us a quick briefing at the Pentagon. Then the helicopter went down to Norfolk. We got on the Sink Lance personal plane. So we were getting a sense that this is pretty important stuff because we'd been ferried in the COCOM commander's jet to the island of Grenada and landed there. We had no transportation. Nobody really did. We were all, Everybody was just walking around, essentially. We were kind of linked to the 18th Airborne Corps G2. It was kind of at least somebody we could talk to. Uh, and then we finally started finding all the captured equipment and inventorying it and sending reports up the chain about, hey, they've got millions and millions of rounds of AK-47. Well, you know, they had probably had a 300-year lifetime supply of ammunition. They had artillery. They had mortars, things that Caribbean nations would have no business having, anti-aircraft guns, uh, armored vehicles, BRDM, uh, armored cars, those kinds of things, things that you know, no other country in, the, in that region had, except for obviously Cuba. And we submitted all these reports and we started seeing it reflected in national reporting and in the media. And then we were asked to load a bunch of it on an aircraft. We flew it up to uh, Andrews Air Force Base where President uh, Herbert Walker Bush was there and they made a big media to do about, look at all this stuff that was on this island. And our guys were the ones that were saying, this is identifying it, telling them what it was. And so we really felt like we had a huge sense of purpose. I mean, there was no, you know, there was no huge need to, you know, learn any insights about this equipment. It wasn't new cutting edge equipment, but the fact that we were there and we could tell them what kind of equipment was that it was Soviet in origin, I think, you know, was really important for us. And we felt like uh, we had a huge mission and, and it didn't hurt that we were in a tropical paradise to boot uh, at the same time, honestly. Yes, sir. And everything you said there really just underscores the importance of what the order of battle can tell us in a conflict. And everything you described with 
Grenada, I was just thinking, okay, Syria, Libya, some of these other conflicts that the U.S. military has become involved in, but that's, of course, because the local forces there were being supplied by outside actors. And of course, it creates an anomaly when you see they've got equipment that you know cannot be organically produced within that country and is probably a far cry budget-wise for them to be able to acquire. Putting my intelligence hat on for a second, that's definitely plug, you know, for the rest of the forces that if you see something that looks a little bit out of place, that order of battle with the equipment just tells you so much about the enemy that you're actually facing. So that's an incredible story and experience that you had, and I'm sure very gratifying as well, sir. Yeah, formative for me in, in, as a young first lieutenant who was fat, dumb, and happy up at Aberdeen Proving Ground. We were happy just kind of writing up reports about Soviet equipment and all of a sudden called and brought it on board and you know, in the midst of a huge operation was really shaped a lot of the way I thought about the military from that point forward. Yes, sir. And that would not be the last time you were really in a, a high profile and consequential position in your military career. So I'd like to fast forward to your time as the Deputy Commanding General of U.S. Forces in Iraq, where you oversaw the troop drawdown back in 2011. So can you share any anecdotes from that experience in which something that you had previously read or studied helped you develop and lead the drawdown strategy? Yeah, thanks. So I got there in 2011, uh, relieved an officer, uh, Ed Cardone, who went on to take division command, and I was the assistant U.S. Forces Iraq commander for support, responsible for drawdown and transition. And it was a time of great uncertainty. We weren't sure whether there was going to be a transition force that would continue on in Iraq or whether we'd have to be out of Iraq completely. And as it turned out, the decision was made to get uh, completely out of Iraq. And, uh, you know, the United States had been hauling stuff into Iraq essentially since 2003. Millions and millions of tons of stuff, thousands of containers, thousands of vehicles, 40,000 vehicles, 50,000 containers, uh, maybe 40,000 people. You know, when I got there, you know, it was like, did we ever plan to leave? Because we have so much stuff here and it has taken us eight years to get all this stuff here. How can we possibly get it out of here in, you know, five, six, seven, eight months? And getting on the ground, it was like, there is no way. <laughs> this is this is not going to be possible. We're, we need to call for uh, an appeal right now and say, hey, we can't get all this stuff out of here. Because, you know, that state's a drug in containerized housing units, air conditioners, tankers, fire trucks, you name it. I don't think we ever had any intent of getting out of Iraq, frankly, when you look around. So it was a bit intimidating. I read a book or two. One I remember was called Moving Mountains by Gus Bagonis, who was the primary logistician in charge of Desert Storm. And that was, he was describing how they moved mountains of stuff to Kuwait, to Saudi Arabia, uh, for the first Gulf War. And, uh, you know, he talked about the power of when you have an organization all united and moving in the same direction. And I slowly, after reading that book and after talking to everybody, said, you know, this is this is not like, unlike anything else the Army has done. And, you know, it was an Army-run thing, even though it was joint. This is all very doable. And so I began to be the guy of confidence. And I would go around to the various bases in Iraq and I would say, hey, guys, I know it looks like you have a ton of stuff here, but you need to understand we have the entire U.S. military standing behind you. We have dozens. I mean, we have thousands of trucks in Kuwait that are prepared to come up here and get your stuff and working together. We will get this stuff out of here. And I, and one of the things I would always tell the media, because I would do a number of interviews, I would say, hey, when the chips are down, 
ladies and gentlemen, never bet against the United States military because we will surprise you. We will do amazing things when we set our mind to it. And we did set our mind to it. We got the word that we had to have everything out of Iraq by December 31st, 2011. And, you know, I stood on the shoulders of great ones. They already had a plan together. And all we had to do was essentially execute it and adjust it as things happened. And then I remember President Obama, he was given a media interview and we were watching the news. I remember in the dining facility and he says, we are going to have the soldiers home for Christmas. And I remember looking over at the J-Force, you know, saying, wait a minute, that's not what we were told. We were told December 31st because honestly, every day was important to us. So we had to rejigger the entire plane schedule to get everybody out by Christmas. But again, the military made it happen. And I think probably, you know, 97% of all the people got home and spent Christmas with their families that year. And it's just, you know, it's just amazing to me. I don't know what the military can't do because if we got that done, they can do anything. Logistics sometimes can be underrated. And we've got a lot of great quotes from Napoleon on down the line of general officers who said that logistics are absolutely fundamental. And everything you just described there too really shows that, yeah, you can have a great plan and have a lot of people dedicated to it, but you need to have the actual logistical planners and movers and shakers on the ground to make it happen. That's a great story and just kind of lesson of reading, as you discussed before, coming into actually making things happen in the current day. You hung up your uniform, sir, and you are now working at the Heritage Foundation, but you still take your role as a mentor very seriously. And one of the ways that you've done that is by leading Heritage's George C. Marshall Fellows Program. So can you tell us a little bit about the fellowship and why it's named for George Marshall? Yes. First, I should mention, Bridget, that you were a proud graduate of the program and you did well in that year. But George C. Marshall Fellowship Program is a program that we run for, I would say, mid-career national security professionals in Washington, D.C. It's it's normally, you know, in person. Of course, this past year we had to do it virtually. But our purpose, our objective is to train, educate these people in grand strategy and in strategic leadership. And we, our method of doing that is to bring in key leaders in Washington, D.C. and really have them talk about their perspectives, what their experiences were working in the Pentagon, working in the State Department, working in the National Security Council, or even sometimes just in academia. How did they get through the challenges? How do they view this, this challenge of having America succeed on the global stage. I'd like to tell you that after 36 years in the army, I was an expert on this, but I was far from it. And so I am a student in this class too. And I learned every year about uh, new stuff and, and I get insights from these people like head of the CIA, the, you know, our assistant secretaries, all these kinds of great people. You know, when you get them in a room and you tell them, hey, this is all off the record, typically they will open up much more than they will like if you got them on a media stage or something like that, if they're talking on the record. So it's just fascinating to me. We also use readings. We read a book about George C. Marshall. We do a staff ride to the Gettysburg battlefield. And so we read Killer Angels in that regard. And then typically we go and we do a simulation of the Yalta Conference, the Yalta World War II Conference. And we read a book about that too. We learn about Churchill and Roosevelt and how they had to maneuver their countries back in World War II to try and uh, ensure their success too. So it's a fascinating program. We usually have about 26, 27 uh, fellows every year from Capitol Hill, from the executive branch, 
and from private industry. It's a great mix. And uh, I don't have to do anything. These people, once we get them in there, they just run this program themselves almost. Yes, sir. And it was a fantastic experience. And I think the the reading, as you said, was really just as instrumental as all of the experts that you brought into it. And George Marshall is a figure that a lot of us were familiar with. We knew he was the great architect, not only of our victory in World War II, but really setting up the post-war liberal order and solidifying Europe in preparation for the Cold War. And what a lot of people, I think, might not know about George Marshall, but we were able to study through David Roll's book, um, which is just an awesome quintessential biography on George Marshall, is he is someone who never commanded troops in combat. And actually, the closest he did get was as the operational planner under General Fox Connor during uh, the Cantini battle. And I'd like just to read a a brief excerpt here because I think it's really instructive for especially younger officers and NCOs that now may think, okay, the wars are over. I'm not going to get my combat experience. What does this mean for my career? But Marshall had a similar start to his career at Cantini. And the excerpt here from David Roll's book says that Marshall regarded battle as the defining moment of his life as a soldier. Over a 50-year career spanning three shooting wars, it was only at Cantini that Marshall was actually in combat, under hostile artillery and small arms fire for hours, and operating behind enemy lines at night. All around him, he saw soldiers maimed and killed. He did not carry a rifle. He did not lead troops in battle. But it was during this ordeal that Marshall, for the first time, became convinced that he had the nerve, stamina, and temperament to make command decisions under the most difficult battlefield conditions. And that's actually very similar to Dwight Eisenhower's early career as well. And Eisenhower didn't even get to deploy to the front. So what do you think it was about that generation of leaders, sir, that you know, they were formed perhaps much differently in their company grade years than you and, and some of your colleagues were, but yet they were able to rise to the occasion when the nation called on them? Yeah, they were steadfast. I don't think, you know, they had kind of a Spartan uh, upbringing, you know, Marshall went to VMI and and, you know, there was never any coddling. And, you know, I think by virtue of their probably professional reading, because Marshall talks a lot about his his background and reading and stuff like that, they became uh, very solidly grounded in their character, the way they thought about things. And they didn't overthink problems. On the other hand, you know, that talks about, I love this part about Marshall, and I could give you a bunch of anecdotes. But one is when he was chief of staff of the army, he would go back to his quarters up at Fort Myer and, you know, have tea with his wife. Sometimes he'd ride a horse. Sometimes he'd take a nap and then maybe he'd come back to the office. Maybe he wouldn't. But, you know, this is somebody that left the Pentagon in the midst of a world war and went and had tea with his wife, you know, and he he knew that he put his orders in the hands of capable people and he didn't need to be there to micromanage things. And I think that constancy of purpose and that patience, strategic patience is something we could learn from today in some cases. He was a master delegator and leader developer as well. And I think a lot of that probably came from his time down at Fort Benning running the infantry school where he was seeing lieutenants and captains going through their training. And he kept almost a little black book of officers that he thought would have greater potential to go on and serve. And that list is how he and President Roosevelt actually chose a lot of the commanders for various operations during World War II. And I think he derived that sense of talent management, talent scouting, whatever you might want to call it, from Fox Connor 
during World War II. And last season on this podcast, when Lieutenant General Ashley was on the show, he mentioned the book called The Gray Eminence about Fox Connor and the role that he played in mentoring Marshall Eisenhower and Patton. And sometimes characters like that can get glossed over, you know, whether it's a war we maybe don't study as much about like World War I or an interwar period. But um, if we didn't have a guy like Fox Connor, where would we have been during World War II? It's true. Absolutely true. So, sir, our second to last question for you is about your other big role at Heritage, which is directing the Index of U.S. Military Strength, which is the only non-governmental and the only annual assessment of U.S. military strength that measures how well our armed forces can provide for the common defense. Could you tell us a little bit about the major findings from the 2021 index and what do the military members of our audience kind of need to be aware of coming out of that report? The report is available online. So if you just Google index of U.S. military strength, you'll find it. We have experts write these. I write the section on the Army. I have an Air Force officer who writes the Air Force section. We strive to be an unclassified, authoritative reference for the state of the U.S. military. And you think, well, gosh, can't you find that already? Why do you need this index? And, and honestly, you cannot. You cannot find somebody that says, here is the state of the Air Force, or the Army, and we try and be that, and we try and be unbiased. And so we reference congressional testimony, facts and figures, uh, authoritative stuff, not, you know, you won't find us referencing opinion pieces, because we think the American public needs to know about the state of their military. And really, right now, there is no way to get that. And what we have found is that, A, the United States military is the best in the world, bar none. B, the United States military may not be big enough or sufficiently uh, equipped to take on the challenges that are described in the national defense strategy, i.e. counter the efforts of Russia and China, North Korea, Iran, and terrorists. All those types of things are at least as stressing as probably the challenges this country uh, faced in the Cold War. And right under our noses, the United States military has slowly been degrading. And so the Navy has the fewest number of ships they've had really in 60 years, and the Air Force has the fewest number of aircraft that they've had since their founding. And these aircraft, it'd be one thing if all these ships were modern and new, but that's not the case. The Air Force is depending on aircraft that have an average age of 30 years and the Navy ships an average age of 20 years. And our adversaries, especially China, are modernizing at a much accelerated rate, putting in the water every year, the size of the ships of, the, of Spain and the United Kingdom and France combined. And so it's kind of a wake-up call. We don't want to ter terrify anybody, but on the other hand, we think people, the American public needs to know about their military. Again, the best in the world, but they are stressed right now to do what they are asked to do. And do you foresee any specific public-private partnerships maybe helping to bridge that gap specifically for the Navy and the Air Force, sir? I know that's a model that we've used specifically during World War II. And there's been some, of course, promising strides made with Operation Warp Speed. What's your confidence level, I guess, going forward with public-private partnerships as a way to mitigate some of the risks that you identified? Yeah, I, I will say I'm moderately encouraged because the new incoming administration and its officials, they seem to share the view of China as a threat to the United States. We know we have had periods in the not-too-distant past where we thought China could be reformed and we could make them into a mini model of capitalism. And we have since come to the recognition that that's not going to happen. They are actually heading in the opposite direction. So I think there's a bit of bipartisan consensus about the threats we face. 
No one's talking about a reset with Russia, which is one of the things we often do at the start of a new administration. I think that is a positive sign that we have recognized uh, Russia for what it is. So I think I think there is reason for optimism. And I think the overwhelming mainstream national security professionals in Washington, D.C. believe that we need to continue to have a strong national defense and fund it appropriately. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And all of your your stories, I think, have really shed some light on where we are as a country, as a military, and especially for some of our younger listeners, knowing we may be in a bit of an interwar period, so to speak, right now, but that's definitely not a reason to let up on our professional development, our training, our studying, because when the time comes, we, we absolutely need to be prepared. So with that, sir, do you have any final words of wisdom or encouragement for our audience? I do. Yeah, thank you. So I want to go back to George C. Marshall, because again, I think he's underappreciated in American history. Uh, and most of the credit goes to the Pattons and the people that were on the front lines. And there's this great story about George C. Marshall early in his career. He's over in World War I, and uh, he is the uh, operations officer of a division that I think it's the Big Red One. And it's commanded by a guy named William Cyber. And John J. Pershing, the commander, the theater commander, U.S. theater commander, comes to visit. And he's looking around and he's watching the division exercise. And they're clearly not up to speed. You know, they're, they're stumbling around. They're not proficient in their stuff. John Pershing just rips into the division commander publicly in front of everybody. He violates everything that we've been taught, you know, as army officers what to do. You know, just rips into the division commander in front of his whole staff tells him that he's completely ate up and that uh, this division is not ready to go. Pershing spins on his heels and starts walking towards his car. Major Marshall, Major George C. Marshall at the time, the operations officer, actually grabs a hold of John Pershing's jacket, tugs at his sleeve and says, excuse me, sir, there are a few things you need to learn. And he starts telling Pershing about all the things all their requests for supplies and equipment, training areas and everything that Pershing staff has denied that division. And Marshall's colleagues, his contemporaries, are looking at Marshall like he has lost his mind. And they're thinking in the back of their heads, dead man walking. Marshall is done. He just grabbed theater commander and is not sticking his finger in his chest, but he is talking to Pershing. And he's not even letting Pershing get a word in. And uh, this goes on for a few minutes. And then, I don't know, Pershing says, okay, got it. And gets back in his staff car and drives away. And everybody's like, well, you know, all right, George, good on you for getting your word in. You're done, man. And then word comes down through channels that Pershing wants Marshall to be his aide. I mean, it's just a great story. And I tell people, when you're in a leadership position in the military, you need to go to work every day thinking, this may be my last day. I may have to put my career, my stuff on the line today. If I'm asked to tolerate something that I find intolerable, I may have to end it that day. And if you go to work every day like that, your, your heart is in the right place because you've put some things ahead of your career. And that's what Marshall did that day. He didn't, he didn't go to work that day thinking I'm going to tell off the theater commander, but he did. And it actually worked out for him. I don't know if it's a, a, a technique I'd recommend. But it worked out for Marshall, and it's kind of a mark as a major of you know what he was made of, and that lasted the rest of his career. And so, 
It's been delightful to join you, Bridget. I've really enjoyed this talk. I encourage all your readers to keep reading. Read this book on George C. Marshall by David Roll. It's thick. It's it's hard to get through, but you will be better for it. Yes, sir. And it's George Marshall, Defender of the Republic by David L. Roll, who's also written a couple books on FDR and Harry Hopkins. So he's very familiar with this time period. And he may be another guest we have to get on the show to, to follow up here. So thank you so much, sir, for your time. For all of our listeners, we hope that you'll check out George Marshall's book, The Index of Military Strength, and that you will also join us again next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.